Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the latest in the series of the Ask Forbes podcasts with me, Darren Burton, Head of Housing Consultancy. These podcasts are designed to have a chat with people from the legal world, the housing world and beyond to find out the challenges that are facing the sectors and look at how we can put solutions in place to collectively solve them. Um, today's guest I'm delighted to welcome is Dan Milnes, a partner here at Forbes and also the lead on everything governance, compliance and regulation. Good afternoon. Before we start, I'd just like good afternoon, Dan. Before we start, I'd just like to clarify that we are observing social distancing um, in accordance with um, coronavirus legislation. We're not actually in the same room or the same building. We're in a separate town, so that's more than two meters. And also, the parcels have been delivered today, so there shouldn't be any interruptions. So, um, Dan is going to talk to us today about his experience and his background and basically how we can work with a range of different partners, including housing associations from up and down the country, local authorities and other businesses to um, address issues such as GDPR, which is still very much the elephant in the room in a lot of ways and a big issue for people who work in housing, whether that be frontline practitioners, senior managers or policy makers. And we'll discuss a, a range of different issues as well as that, such as um, the new um, complaints code for the housing ombudsman and everything in between. Just to point out as well, if you do have any uh, questions that you think about whilst you're listening to this podcast, um, the contact details will be available on the web link. So you can contact myself, Dan, or anyone else at Forbes to uh, offer your advice and, and work with you. So without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Dan. Good afternoon, Dan. Hi, Darren. So to give a bit of an overview of uh, how I personally come to this. I've been at Forbes now for more years than I usually care to admit, <laughs> and that's uh, since late 1996. So certainly it's uh, it's been a while, and I've uh, certainly seen a few changes. Uh, my role within the firm's evolved um, from being involved in the setup of the business law team, uh, which dealt with a lot of uh, work for organisations of all kinds, uh, that's developed further. So now we have the governance procurement and information team, which is specialising a lot in uh, issues affecting public sector, charitable, education organisations. And I've been working with housing associations on a number of these issues for a good 20 years at least now. So where we tend to come into uh, a housing provider's radar is we're pretty much the legal embodiment of the regulators governance and financial viability standard and if you take that as the starting point everything that comes out from that uh, the gpi team would like to be able to help with so the the gmv standard covers the the governance arrangements within an organization so the constitution decision-making processes, having the right meetings, having the right authorizations in place, and it extends out into group structures, uh, intra-group uh, contracting and organizational setup. It also then looks at things like procurement and managing the risk to the organization from its existing operations, and in particular, anything new that it wants to start doing. The classic example that the regulator usually uses uh, for this, particularly in its sector risk assessment, is getting into developing houses for private and market selling. Uh, for housing providers who've only had a background in social rent, 
trying to build the archetypal five bedroom, two garage commuter house to be sold off at full price with a view to subsidizing other parts of the development, maybe a new experience. It's a different set of risks. It's a different amount of planning you've got to do. And alongside our development colleagues in that case, that's something that we can help with. Adding new entities to a group, that then tends to reach out into things like mergers, amalgamations, um, consolidations of groups, all of that we can do. Reaches out then into uh, financial management, dealing with lenders, looking after banking, covenant compliance, all of that side of things as well, uh, we're always able to assist with. The, I think what's really interesting there, Dan, just to come in, yeah. is you know, the, the very reference to risk. I think people who may be unfamiliar or haven't used your service before maybe would think that the level of technical legal detail that comes in later down the line is where it's at. But it's really, it can be at the very, the call face and the early intervention um, element of a case to, you know, to contact you and your team and have that reassurance and that clarity in terms of, you know, what can be shared or just handling people's personal data or, or just, you know, dealing with a case, something as straightforward no, as that really. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I was going to say the uh, the next element I was going to talk about is GDPR and data protection compliance. And you've hit the nail on the head exactly. It's the compliance on that is always done in advance wherever you can. It's very difficult to retroactively fix data protection compliance because a lot of it is about what documents have you got in place what notices have you shown people what did people know about what you were going to do with their information before you did it and the same is true with a lot of the governance work we do uh, we've had an example recently of a, a client that's looking to uh, bring a business into its group uh, with a view to saving the business from being closed down and the instructing officer uh, the business development officer whose job that is we had a kickoff call. How do we approach this project? Where do we think the risks are? Whose consent are we going to need to get this thing off the ground? And only then did we even start talking about what might be in any of the legal contracts. A lot of it at the first stage is, can we even do this? Is it within our organization's constitution that this is even the sort of thing we should be trying to do? And governance advice can come down to that really basic level of, you know, does it fit with the organization's DNA that it should try to do a particular thing? Or is that going to be diversification too far that it isn't going to be possible to explain away to the regulator? So you're absolutely right. The, where we can hopefully become involved is the forward planning and then the implementation of things. That said, if people find themselves in a the hole, we're always more than happy to try to dig them out as best we can. It's looking at that huge safety net for both the individual officer and the entire organisation and how you can help through that. That brings me on nicely to uh, GDPR issues that I suppose myself and colleagues um, who have a background in, in ASB and housing management um, would relate to. Um, the issue, I suppose, is frontline officers, whether that be police, local authority, community safety teams or housing officers, you know, keen to share information safely and properly to address cases to keep vulnerable people safe and everything that goes with it. Further up the chain, if you like, um, the senior management teams and the leadership teams will really endorse the importance of, of sharing information and, you know, put and publicise that. But there seems to be this huge gap in the middle 
that doesn't always marry up so and, and creating that impasse other examples recently we've come across as well where organizations do actually have information sharing agreements and rather than you know getting straight into that and releasing that information by a case conferences professional meetings or whatever they're having to be sent around you know governance teams and often people are even you know faceless systems that they've never dealt with and that's encountering delays furthering the risk and putting strain on organizations that if there was say in a safeguarding context a, uh, a fatality or if there was financial implications or compliance whether it that be you know linked to sort of repairs and asset management then that just increases the pressures and it seems to be that that almost blob in the middle if you like for want of a better term that still hasn't been resolved and i think that that resonates throughout the country so you know any comments or advice you could come in on there that'd be brilliant then um that's exactly the experience that we sometimes see and not only from working on the files that we uh, pick up with you guys but also different organizations i've been talking to only today um uh, a police and crime commissioner's office talking about how does their data sharing work you know, they've got regulators they've got policies they have to implement and then you've got the people at the coalface trying to deal with the uh, the individual service users that are on the phone wanting something to happen and it's squaring those two requirements and I'm putting mine particularly down of the uh, the conference that we we had over in West Yorkshire, um, not so very far back, yeah. when one of the key themes that came out from uh, your contribution and uh, Darren Minton's contribution as well was there is that government guidance out there which has got that very specific comment in it that safeguarding is everybody's business, but also and really importantly in this context, GDPR and data protection compliance if it's done properly, should not be a barrier to sharing information when you need to do it. And the key thing that we always say to all our clients is, you know, try and look at this from first principles. The, the GDPR and the Data Protection Act doesn't say, do this, don't do that. What it says is, here's a justification that you could use. Here are some broad principles about how to handle data properly. And provided you within both of those things, however you choose to do it is okay. So there isn't a do it this way, anything else is wrong. What an organization or organizations looking to work together can do is find a solution that works for them. And one, another example of this outside safeguarding is choice-based letting schemes, where you've got multiple uh, providers working together, trying to have a consistent application process for all the various housing that they manage and there are different points of entry into that scheme. You might come to it via any one of the providers. Then there's a central yeah. line and it's coming back out to the provider who manages the house in question. And a lot of that is we've just got to put the right arrangements in place between the different players beforehand and then just stick to them. But certainly in terms of safeguarding, community safety, all of those aspects, um, it's a mistake to believe that you've got to find a way through GDPR generally speaking the more obvious the need to share the information the easier it is for me to find a way that gdpr says that you can um, are you, are you so, finding so, any sorry dan to come over uh, there um are you finding a greater level of flexibility when you mentioned choice based lettings there that, that people are looking to kind of navigate the systems make individual decisions to the benefit of um, getting vulnerable people housed or looking at you know a transfer for a victim or is it still to an extent computer says no these are our systems someone's on a waiting list or whatever and you know is there much give there are you noticing any changes you know throughout the country the different housing providers or you know if things improving would you say 
what computer says no is uh, a phrase that I use when I'm delivering training because computer says no is an example of what the GDPR calls automated decision making. And within a subset of automated decision making, you have what's called profiling. And if you actually allow a situation where a decision that has an impact on individuals is being done purely from a computerized system, any individual has a statutory right to object to that and to require that a human being gets involved in that decision making process. So what we would always look to do with choice-based letting is a great example is rather than say, set the whole system up and then show us the terms and conditions and we'll give you legal advice. What we always rather do with the organizations concerned is get in at an early stage and say, okay, show me how this works. Show me the flow chart, show me the plan. And then potentially we can say, all right, well, let's stop you at stage one. Does this system differentiate urgency? How would somebody who has an urgent safety-based need for rehousing, do they even come into this system? Or would you expect them to be dealt with differently and then only the houses that are left after you've done that go into choice-based letting. And so it's that sort of policy decision of, does this process fit everyone? And should we be forcing everybody through it before we land people in the wrong system? Okay. And I think it's more critical than ever now, given the, the strange and unprecedented, you as that word, um, times we're in at the moment with COVID, with the homelessness um, increases and the housing crisis, and also the, the noticeable spikes in domestic abuse uh, reporting as well. So I think that's more prominent than ever now. No, absolutely. And we, we find this a lot in the education work that we do, and certainly in um, housing and community safety work. Uh, the... Yeah, there are situations where much as we talk about GDPR and everybody sees the enormous fines that have been levied against British Airways, Cafe Pacific, that kind of thing. Those fines are not coming to you if you're making a serious job to do safeguarding. Um, I'm not entirely going to bet my house on it because you wouldn't expect a solicitor to do that. Of course not. But I, <laughs> I would be legitimately astonished and disappointed if the ICO tried to level that kind of fine against an organisation that was dealing with a limited number of people who were looking to them for protection and they were engaging with other uh, organizations in a responsible way. Yes, you're dealing with highly sensitive um, and special category personal data, but you're doing it for the absolute best of reasons. And what we don't want, certainly for within my team, we don't want our client organizations to lose sight of the mission that they are there to achieve. We are there to help you help your people. And that's where we come into this. We're not going to tell you what to do and not do. You tell us what needs to happen and we will do our damnedest to make it right. I think one of the priorities for the Ask Forbes team certainly is almost that quest for consistent ways of working. Now, in housing, as you know, only too well, and obviously our listeners do as well, um, a lot of the themes are the same, whether, you know, whatever town or city or, or village for that matter, um, the issue is taking place in, um, but so many different ways of doing it and so much inconsistency, some areas might be more proactive than others. Have you got any examples out on behalf of um, housing provider clients, you, you've sort of gone into that multi-agency arena or work with partners to overcome those barriers, particularly where there's a reluctance to sharing information? I think it, it's a general theme that we see across a lot of different organisations of everybody's had to react to GDPR coming in and everybody's had to get their understanding of what compliance looks like because that's the existential nature of GDPR. It tells every organization you have to come up with your own solution. Where we think we can bring real value to organizations that are working together is 
to try to avoid that situation happening where you see two people having what sounds like an argument, but actually they're both saying the same thing. And we get that an awful lot of, well, we have a policy that says we shouldn't do this, or we have a policy that says we shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both of those policies are perfectly sensible, but neither of them actually stops you doing what you need to do here. And it, you know, some of what we can do is it's almost a sort of um, C-3PO-like um, translation and protocol service of we can see what you guys are trying to achieve. We can see what you guys are trying to achieve. Yeah, we can accept, we can accept we believe common ground that we want to protect this person here from domestic violence. Fine. Well, in that case, I can see that way through your process. I can see that way through your process. So if you need to put together an information sharing protocol between your two organizations, let's find the common theme in your two policies and let's link them up. It's going to be very difficult, I think, for one organization that's got assurance sign off on its compliance solution to start changing the core documents to make them line up with somebody else's. But in theory, if you've done it properly, the underlying theme should remain consistent. And because we're involved in advising on how those themes work, we can pretty regularly spot them when we need to find them. So thinking outside the box as well, in terms of any ASB type meetings, it could be useful to bring a member of your team into that multi-agency arena, whereas you're not necessarily getting involved in the housing management issues. But if those information sharing issues overlap into that case, then it could be useful to have you know your input on board with that. And we don't often do that really as much as we probably should. Yeah, we're always happy to get involved. And certainly our the, the lead um, uh, certified data protection advisor in our team, uh, Bethany, has a background working in housing management before she joined our team. So not only do we have the technical knowledge, we actually have within our team quite a lot more experience on the housing side than it looks that we do. Uh, and that, I mean, our other advisor in the team, Gemma, is ex-deputy head of legal at Blackpool Council and used to work with their housing subsidiary. So we've all of us got an understanding of how housing works, how safeguarding works, and we, you know, we can happily get involved in specific meetings or you know, even as an example, if we could be shown an agenda from one of those meetings as to the kind of information that that meeting wants to cover, yeah, we can probably do quite a lot of good from that. That'd be really, really useful. I'm thinking about uh, particularly where we're working with multiple clients, the larger housing providers who have dispersed stock um, across local authority areas, but are experiencing the same barriers with say, adult social care or the particular neighborhood policing team in that, in that area. There's some merits in in getting all those different components of the case, including information sharing and governance with the enforcement element or the support element, putting them all together and um, hopefully achieving a successful outcome and getting bargain from those other agencies. And I think once the penny drops almost and organisations feel comfortable sharing information in that appropriate way with your expertise as part of that process, then hopefully that will enable things to go smoother further down the line. And I think uh, one of the ways where we can bring value to it is if the different organisations concerned have all got to go back and get sign off from their governance or information management teams, yeah, to, to overgeneralise a little bit, those people are my tribe. So yeah, I can potentially help facilitate those discussions. If we've got you know, two or three data protection officers that we need to get on a call and try and get something we can all agree on, then yeah, I, one of our team might not be a bad person to facilitate that call. 
And again, from your experience, again, putting you a bit on the spot here, I suppose, but uh, one of the frustrations for me, certainly in my role, is sometimes the delays it takes in getting an information sharing agreement signed off when it could be the housing providers working in one local authority area and the next one is, you know, metres away from the boundary, yet one, one will have it all signed off and ready and the other won't, and they're pretty much the same. Um, how do we kind of overcome them? Because it does seem to be, you know, a repeat theme. And, and again, there's there's some fantastic examples of good practice, don't get me wrong, and that should be celebrated. But sometimes we're still encountering the frustrations, you know, particularly with organisations who maybe have a smaller footprint in that area, yet the neighbouring local authority, they could have, you know, 20,000 properties or something like that, you know. Yeah. And I think uh, it comes back to the, the point I mentioned earlier of all of those local authorities, uh, as of May 18, were put on the, on the spot themselves and they had to come up with a compliance solution. And there will have been some interaction between local authorities because some of the guidance from the ICO around getting ready for GDPR was to suggest that it's all right to liaise with similar organisations who have similar problems, try and come up with similar... However, in a lot of local authorities, and I, I know this from my colleagues' experience, yeah, a team of people were told, you have to make this right by May 2018. And yeah. therefore, what they had to do was they had to get ready for their organisation, answer to their line managers and compliance officers, and get something that their teams will buy into. So what sometimes happens is you've got a solution that's set up to work with one authority. You then take that to another authority and... In principle, it will work because GDPR is the same everywhere. What will happen is if it's been specifically negotiated for one organization, it may be that the terminology doesn't tie up with what the, the next organization is looking to do. And the actually, the quicker way to move forward will be to go a step back from the agreement you've negotiated elsewhere, get what uh, we would refer to as something like heads of terms or a term sheet, executive summary, go back to the bullet points of what you're trying to achieve and then bring that back into the next organization and almost negotiate it over again, but from a position of hopefully everybody understanding what they're trying to achieve, rather than hitting the, the hopefully easily avoided problem of, well, that clause doesn't make sense because we don't have a document called that. Right. And yeah. what you can often say is, well, yeah, you don't have a document called that, but you must have one that's very similar to it because I know enough about how GDPR works that I know you've got to have one. So what's sometimes easier is we go back to the generality and then let the second uh, organization say, oh, right, okay, what you're talking about there is the thing that we call this. Oh, great, yeah, well, let's have a paragraph about that then. So sometimes you, you take half a step back and then maybe you can get forward a little quicker. So keeping things as simple as possible, but having that legal reassurance backing it up. Yeah, I think the issue is, yeah, let's let's try let's try and find I mean, as a non-contentious lawyer and not not a litigator, my mission in life is let's find as much as possible that we know we agree on and then let's build on that. That's great. That, that gives us um, a nice link into uh, the other issue we're going to discuss today is um, the new complaints code from the Housing Ombudsman. Now we're seeing quite an, a bit of an increase in Ombudsman involvement particularly around the various standards and as well the ongoing cases that have kind of gone on and on and maybe identified failings or challenges within systems or policies and sometimes in those cases you know mediation may have been brought in and, and, and not worked for whatever reason but it's almost like you've forgotten what the issue was in the first place and it, it's 
you know, when the regulator can potentially get dragged in beyond the ombudsman, then again, it gets very messy and looking at how we can avoid that. And it does seem to be these, these cases that have gone on and on, particularly around sort of housing management, customer service um, yeah. remit, really. And that's been, we've, we've noticed a few examples, again, in, in various parts of the country that have, that have come ahead. And when you examine them and put a plan together, you're almost going back to square one with it, really. And, and sometimes in examples as well as given sort of, you know, the recommendation to maybe look at some self-referrals in certain cases, but it's really important, as, as, as you know, to, to get that right to avoid that and to give that organisation the reassurance to, to not even get anywhere near the ombudsman. So, I mean, if you just want to take us through um, some, um, you know, a bit of a summary of the new code and your experience around that, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, new code only published in July of this year, and the two, well, the key deadline in it that everybody needs to be aware of is the end of December, the end of the calendar year 2020. By that point, all landlords who are members of the Housing Ombudsman scheme, as one of the conditions of membership, need to abide by guidance that's issued. And what the uh, Housing Ombudsman has decided happens in this case is that all member landlords must complete a self-assessment against the new code. And the self-assessment form is actually at the back of the new code. And not only must that be completed and submitted to the housing ombudsman, it must also be taken through the housing uh, organisations board. And it's got to be published and made known to their residents. So it, it's uh, quite a significant requirement on those landlords to assess themselves against the new code. So it isn't just a matter of generally review your complaints procedure and see if you're happy with it. This is a, effectively a rebasing to a new standard that the housing ombudsman will expect to see. And effectively, if you have got a, com uh, a complaint procedure that the ombudsman does not think complies with the code, then straight away, it doesn't matter how well you operate your procedure, your procedure will be wrong from top to bottom. And any complaint about how you've handled it will effectively succeed because the ombudsman will rule that the procedure itself was inadequate. So examples of that would be the, uh, the ombudsman very clearly says a one-step complaint procedure is wrong. A two-step complaint procedure is what is recommended in the code. A three-step complaint procedure would have to be explicitly justified by the landlord in its self-assessment return. And a four-step complaint procedure is always wrong. So one of the key things that came up in the Q&A session with the Ombudsman service that um, I attended was what about informal resolution? What about what they refer to as stage zero? And when does, you know, the, the tricky question, when is a complaint not a complaint? And the answer may be, uh, given the very wide definition of complaint that the code brings in, pretty much anything's a complaint. The question is, is it a complaint that now has to engage stage one of a procedure as defined by the new code? And the Ombudsman seems to be giving some flexibility for organisations to say, we are engaged in, uh, to borrow a phrase from other arenas, uh, local informal resolution. And we don't think this has yet become a formal complaint. And one of the answers that was given for that would be uh, repair service. So for instance, as a call to the housing provider, your repair service was meant to come to my house at two o'clock this afternoon. It's now five o'clock. They're not here. What are you going to do about it? Okay, 
we're going to ring our contractor, we're going to kick somebody, and can you accommodate somebody coming at eight o'clock tomorrow morning? Yes, I can. And if that's solved by eight o'clock the following morning, that's probably not a stage one complaint. That's a service uh, quality management action that's happening in the real world. What the uh, the Ombudsman Service is very keen to avoid, however, is any procedures that a landlord might be operating that are a discouragement to residents to start a formal complaint if that is what they really want to do. So even if my repair appointment is running three hours late, if I want to start a formal complaint about that, the, the answer is you're probably supposed to let me. Uh, there are some uh, points in the code about when you don't have to take a complaint. And again, the Ombudsman will uh, acknowledge that there are situations when the complaint process is not the appropriate way forward. However, the theme here is, in my mind, very similar to how GDPR works. If this is somebody's individual right, you've got to try very hard to justify taking it away from them. And the, the way that complaints defined now allows for complaints to be started on the phone, face-to-face, -face, by social media. It doesn't have to be filling in a paper complaint form, not probably that it has been for a number of years, but that greater degree of flexibility in how you engage with the process is very like the GDPR idea of subject access request doesn't have to be made in writing. So one of the key issues for all landlord organisations, right from pretty much point one in the new code is, does our organization know a complaint when it sees or hears one? Because people aren't yeah, if people aren't being given the guidance, then what you risk there is getting one of the uh, ombudsman's new uh, complaint handling failure notices, which as of January next year are going to be collated and published on a quarterly basis with what I assume is going to be a naming and shaming league table of which landlords have attracted the most complaint handling failure notices. And if one of the grounds for getting a failure notice is excluding somebody from the complaint system when you should have let them in. So absolutely, that key, that very first contact decision of, do I think this has got the element of a complaint about it? Am I making that resident aware that while I am going to sort your problem out on the ground, if I possibly can, you may wish to escalate this as a complaint. And if you want to do that, I will help you do it. Uh, it might seem odd because yeah, as a, as a frontline officer, my responsibility and my initial reaction is going to be, let me get, let me grip this problem and solve it. I want to make the problem go away. I have less of a concern right now as to how that problem happened. What I want to do is fix it. Equally, I've got to bear in mind at that point and need to be trained to bear in mind at that point how this has happened may still be a legitimate complaint from that resident. The fact that I can fix it doesn't mean that the complaint wasn't justified to begin with. And I think it's having the confidence as well in, in your policies, your whole service delivery models, that if someone does feel strong enough to want a complaint and it fits in that category, then let's hear it, let's address it, and ultimately look at lessons learned and, you know, fine-tuning those processes to make sure that that doesn't happen again and giving that customer the experience that yes I felt I've had the complaint but the organization has listened to my needs we've got around it we've looked at all the options and and that's and has drawn some closure rather than you know a case or a complaint that may be closed but it's still kind of festering in the background and it can kind of come up periodically 
um, every other year. And particularly with um, the new notices from the Ombudsman as well, that clearly you know, no one wants to be anywhere near. Could that ultimately impact on, on governance in the most extreme situations later down the line, Dan? Wouldn't even be extreme situations, uh, Darren. You've, you've hit the nail on the head again. The, uh, what the, the code says is any complaint handling failure notice will be referred to the housing regulator. And if the, uh, the Ombudsman Service considers that there is a serious problem, then the code specifically states they will engage with other regulators, plural. So they don't say who those regulators might be, but off the top of my head, I'm thinking that's the FCA, it's potentially the Charity Commission, it's, it's the CQC. Yeah, the, the, the ripples from this could go a long way. So you're absolutely right. Uh, there are two angles to this. Number one, uh, having a, a positive proactive solution and learning oriented complaint system will by definition will improve the organization and then secondly you absolutely don't want to get clobbered by the regulator nobody does because it's a world of pain and so let's do it right because it's worth doing it right for its own reasons and secondly let's do it right and keep the regulator away so, I mean, that's very much on, on the ground in neighbourhoods, the experience. If someone feels they've had a bad experience, they'll share that and the whole street will know about it. Further up the chain, particularly now in, in these uncertain times, as we said, you know, there's impacts on sort of, you know, affordable housing funding, um, various grants, and again, charitable funding as well, as you mentioned. So, you know, the the risk is, is absolutely massive from something that could have hopefully been prevented at a frontline customer service level as well. So I think it's it's that whole chain and where we can come in as an organization to support um, housing providers in in avoiding these these pitfalls. No, absolutely. And from my perspective, um, what we can do through our team is we can bring something different, but also helpful. Um, I don't want to give the impression that I, I don't have an interest in individual residents. I, I do when we need to. But if what I'm being asked to do is look at does this complaint system line up against what the code requires, then yeah, the individual cases that people might be wrangling with, those are probably my secondary concern. Number one, gap analysis on the process. Do we need to change the process? What we then have to do is make the process work for the organization and the residents. So number one, line it up with the code. And then number two, then we look at what's your experience? What types of complaints do you get? How do you handle them? What's the best solution? And there is flexibility and the Ombudsman service will allow for an element of flexibility in it. So you can tailor it to make it work for you. But number one is, if it doesn't line up with the code, you've just got a problem to begin with. So what I can do is have a look at that without taking away resources from assisting with live complaints or live problems in real streets. And I think looking at the housing press as well recently, comments from Fiona McGregor, et cetera, um, whilst a lot of things have been put on hold naturally by um, the COVID-19 pandemic, the compliance with the standards such as the neighbourhood standard and others, um, there's no give, there's an expectation that that continues. So there's, there's no give for that. And I think organisations to be, to be mindful that, you know, it's very much business as usual in that sense, providing, you know, it's safe to do so with, with sort of distancing PPE and everything that goes with it, so long as that's addressed, um, it is, is very much business as usual. And I think 
Um, in my interpretation, anyway, I could be wrong. Um, the ombudsman seems to be a lot more on the front foot now, going back to sort of 10 years ago when it was very much, you know, well, don't really be contacting us for this, even, you know, speaking to the actual ombudsman themselves, yep. going back sort of, you know, I'm thinking, you know, conferences in, in the late noughties. It's, it's a very much a different um, feeling at the moment. It is, and certainly from the point of view of the code, uh, one of the key issues is transparency and providing information to complainants uh, with a view to, and I think this is potentially something that can benefit providers as well, getting that complainant the help they may need to understand what their complaint is and what it isn't. So within the Housing Ombudsman Service, they've got those um, dispute management officers whose job it is to effectively advise the complainant uh, on how to do the complaint. So at least the idea would be you're going to get a complaint in terms you understand that lines up with how you want to try to deal with it. So uh, the idea of these um, complaint handling failure notices is they can be issued while a complaint is still within the provider's complaint process. So the idea isn't run it all the way internally and the ombudsman only comes in when the resident doesn't like the final result. The, the opportunity to engage with the ombudsman should be there for the resident from day one of putting the complaint in. It almost needs to be, we acknowledge your complaint, and if you need help taking it forward, this is where you find the ombudsman. And their view is, if they can get in at an early stage, then they can potentially prevent um, something escalating because often the complainant has perhaps legitimately misunderstood what that complaint can really achieve for them. Thanks, Dan. That's a really useful insight into uh, what we can expect in terms of the new code. And I think that ties in nicely with the subjects we've discussed today, which primarily have been information sharing, governance and complaints, how they all knit and overlap in the various roles that um, we undertake on behalf of uh, the organisations. So I'd like to say um, on behalf of Ask Forbes, thanks for your time today, Dan. It's been really useful. And to anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you do have any queries, anything you want to discuss, we'll share our details and keep a lookout for uh, the next podcast, which will probably be happening in the next couple of weeks or so. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, take care and we'll see you soon. Thank you.